Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Numbers chapter 13, beginning with verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men uh, to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the children of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man, every one a leader among them. So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran, according to the command of the Lord, all of them men who were heads of the children of Israel. Now these were the names from the tribes of Reuben, Shamua, the son of Zakur, from the tribe of Simeon, Shaphat, the son of Hori, from the tribe of Judah, Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, from the tribe of Issachar, Egal, the son of Joseph, from the tribe of Ephraim, Hoshea, the son of Nun, from the tribe of Benjamin, Palti, the son of Raphu, from the tribe of Zebulun, Gadiel, the son of Sodi, from the tribe of Joseph, that is, from the tribe of Manasseh, Gadi, the son of Susi, from the tribe of Dan, Amiel, the son of Gamaliel, Gamali, from the tribe of Asher, Sethur, the son of Michael, from the tribe of Naphtali, Nabi, the son of Voshi, from the tribe of Gad, Geul, the son of Maki. I wish it was like Johnny and Benjamin and different names like that, but anyways. From the tribe of Gad, Geul, the son of Maki. Verse 16, these are the names of the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land. And Moses called Hoshea, the son of Nun. What's interesting about this list of names that we just read, um, with the exception of Joshua and Caleb, we'll hear a lot more about them in the upcoming chapters and throughout the Bible. But these, le- these other leaders, with the exception of those two, are never again mentioned in Scripture. And we'll, we'll discuss that why a little bit later on. But the first question that comes to my mind as I look at verse 1, or actually it's verse 2, is why uh, did God tell Moses to send the children of Israel or to send spies out into the land of Canaan. And the reason why I ask why is because God had promised to give them the land of Canaan. Back in Exodus chapter 23, in various places, verse 23 of chapter 23, God told this uh, to Moses, for my angel will go before you and bring you into the Amorites and the Hittites, the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I will cut them off. Later on that same chapter, verse 27, I will send my fear before you. I will cause confusion among all the people to whom you come and will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. Verses 28 through 30, and I will send hornets before you. You shall drive out the Hivite, the Canaanite, and the Hittite from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and you inherit the land. So God gave him the promise. He's going to give them the land. God even said, I'm going to go before you. God even said how he was going to drive the people out of the land. So what purpose did it serve in sending spies? Well, the interesting thing is, Scripture seems to indicate that that idea did not originate with God himself. Moses, 40 years later in the book of Deuteronomy, in fact, in chapter 1, you can go ahead and turn your Bibles there if you want, Deuteronomy chapter 1, this is 40 years after they've been wandering in the wilderness. And this is what, God, this is what Moses is kind of retelling the story to the children of the children of Israel. Verse 19 of chapter 1. Moses says, so we departed from Horeb and went through all that great and terrible wilderness which you saw on the way to the mountains of the Amorites, as the Lord our God had commanded us. Then we came to Kadesh Barnea, and I said to you, you have come to the mountains of the Amorites which the Lord our God is giving us. Look, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up and possess it as the Lord God of your fathers has spoken to you. Do not fear or be discouraged." Put yourself in Moses' shoes or his sandals or whatever you want to call them. Maybe he wore clogs. I don't know. You know, put yourself in his walking clothing, whatever, his shoes. I'll just say his shoes. Think about it. You know, 
as a young man in Egypt, Moses, the, the burden of being a deliverer for the, for the children of Israel was on Moses' heart. And as a young man, you know, he tried to, in his own strength, tried to deliver the children of Israel. He, he slew that Egyptian and he, and he thought, man, they're going to just, they're going to welcome me as their deliverer. And, and they didn't. And so he went into hiding and he ran and he, and he went into Midian. And he was there 40 years on the backside of the desert. And during that time, God is just preparing Moses for when it was God's timing for him to be a deliverer. So 40 years have elapsed. Finally, God appears to Moses with the, at the, you know, the burning bush, right? You know that story. And, and sends Moses back to Egypt to tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And Moses goes and does that. And of course, after all those plagues, finally the children of Israel, they're released from bondage and they're sent back. Uh, they're out in the wilderness. And you could think for Moses, it's like, man, mission accomplished. Man, God finally used me. Man, the children of Israel delivered. And now we're on our way to the promised land. And so they're going. And, and it's about 15 months now since they left Egypt when this uh, is taking place here. And so you can imagine during that time, right, God's provided the manna. 15 months, God's provided the manna. They've, they've had enough to eat all the time. It's miraculous how the Lord provided that. They've had water in the desert miraculously provided for them. They've been given God's law. They've also, the, uh, the priesthood's been established and the tabernacle is built. And you can imagine Moses' heart, man, I'm finally, we're, we're getting in there. It's like, you know, he's, he's fulfilling what God had put in on his heart to bring the children of Israel to the promised land. And so he's excited about, hey, here's the land. God's given it to you. Go for it. Well, it also seems that the idea did not originate with Moses either. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 22. And every one of you came near to me and said, let us send men before us and let them search out the land for us and bring back word to us of the way by which we should go up and of the cities into which we shall come. So it seems like it was the people's idea, the children of Israel, it was their idea to send spies into the land. And there in verse 23 of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 1, Moses says, hey, the plan pleased me well. So at the time, you know, the people suggested it and Moses thought, hey, it sounds like a, sounds like a pretty good idea. It sounded wise in a sense, you know, we need to figure out how we're going to conquer the land. But the problem was God had already explained all that to the children of Israel. He had told them that the Canaanites were already afraid of you. They already feared them. He had told them God would go before them. He would drive them out little by little. You know, he wasn't going to just empty the land because then the wild beasts would take over the land. Then they would be dealing with wild animals. So he basically said, little by little, I'm going to give you the land. You're going to take it over. And that way they wouldn't be overwhelmed. They would have to fight battles, but God promised to go before them. God promised to be with them in the battle and God promised to give them victory over the enemy. And he says, you will inherit the land. I mean, that's God's promise. Was that a mistake on Moses's part uh, to, to allow to sending in the spies? Well, we're not going to continue reading in Deuteronomy 1, but if you do, you get the sense that Moses was like, man, this was a big mistake. And I think it was. Well, you might say, well, why wouldn't God want to send spies into Canaan. Same reason why God didn't take them from the direct route from Egypt to Canaan. It's in Exodus chapter 13, verse 17 and 18. It says, then it came to pass when Pharaoh had let the people go that God did not lead them by the way of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest perhaps the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the way of the wilderness of the Red Sea, and the children of Israel went up in orderly ranks out of the land of Egypt. Think about it. The children of Israel were slaves for hundreds of years by this time. They were beaten down. They were used to, they had that slave mentality, right, of being in bondage. They were not ready to go to battle with giants at that point, and not yet at least. 
And they needed to learn about the Lord at Mount Sinai. They needed to grow in their faith and grow in obedience before they could go in and take, take on giants. They needed basically to learn to walk by faith and not by sight. So God says, I'm not going to send you by those giants, you know, because that's what happened. They would have been the same deal. They would have seen them and they would have freaked out. God said, they're going to go back to Egypt. So he led them a long way around. Well, you might say to me, okay, that's all fine what you just said there. But I just read there in verse 1 that the Lord commanded them to send spies into the land. So what's the deal? What's the truth? Why did God appear to be commanding the children of Israel, commanding Moses to send spies in? I think this is a case of God's permissive will. God's permissive will. See, at this point... In this story right here in verse 1 and 2, the children of Israel were not rebelling against the Lord by sending in spies or by suggesting it. Um, they weren't, but they also weren't stepping forward, right, in bold obedience to the Lord. God knows what's going to happen, and he knows that they're not exactly ready to enter the promised land. They have a lot to learn. And so what he does here, God says, okay, this is how you're going to do it. Send one man from each tribe, a leader from each tribe to go into the promised land. Why would God do that? Well, if you think about it, all the tribes now are represented on this reconnaissance mission and a chosen leader. See, it's, it's, a good, it's, it's easier to trust someone you know, right, than to someone you don't know at all. There would also be no jealousy, like, man, how come our tribe didn't get, those guys got to go, how come our, so there's no opportunity for jealousy, and there's individual accountability. Each tribe, each tribe would have a say in this. Each tribe would be responsible to step out in faith or shrink back in fear. They couldn't blame another tribe saying, well, you know, if we had gone and saw it, we would have, we would have obeyed the Lord. No, every tribe is accountable at this point. We'll continue on here in verse 17 of chapter 13. Then Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, Go up this way into the south and go up to the mountains and see what the land is like, whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, few or many, whether the land they dwell in is good or bad, whether the cities they inhabit are like camps or strongholds, whether the land is rich or poor, whether there are forests there or not be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land now the time was the season of the first ripe grapes that that ending verse there it talks about the first ripe ripe grapes that gives us a clue as to when this took place this exploit uh, reconnaissance mission took place probably in in august or early september um, so it would have been because that's when the when the grapes that first crop of grapes were and so that would have been several months after they had left Mount Sinai in the spring. So it just kind of gives us a time frame there. Verse 21. So they went up and spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin as far as Rehob near the entrance of Hamath. And they went up through the south and came to Hebron. Ahiman, Shashai, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, were there. Now Hebron was built seven years before Zon. And they came to the valley of Eshkol, and there cut down a branch with one cluster of grapes. They carried it between two of them on a pole. They also brought some of the pomegranates and figs. The place uh, was called the valley of Eshkol because of the cluster which the men of Israel cut down there. Now, in verse 22, it's kind of there in, in my Bible, it's in a parenthesis. It says, now Hebron was built seven years before Zone in Egypt. You might go, well, why, why is that there? It's interesting. If you dig into it, nobody really knows why. It's kind of like, it just seems like, what, why was that put there? It seems like a kind of a just doesn't, it's like, what does it matter? What's well, interesting, and there are different theories why that is written there, and uh, I'm not going to go into all of them, but... What I think all of the people, that have, all these experts that have all these opinions about, I think what they all agree on is that it points to Moses being the author of these books. It's interesting how God does that. He'll just put a little tidbit in somewhere, and, it, and, and then the scholars are digging, and they go, well, there's a Hebrew writer wouldn't have known that. Only someone who was trained, who was educated in Egypt would know the history of this city and stuff. And so it, it proves the authenticity of Moses being the author. 
So the spies go into the land, and sure enough, it's a fruitful land. And so they bring back some of the fruit, the pomegranates. By the way, pomegranates are great out there. Um, but they, they brought back some pomegranates and, uh, and uh, some, some other fruit, and then they bring the grapes, or the figs, and then they bring the grapes. Can you imagine the size of these grapes? The cluster was so big that they put it on a pole and two men carried it. You just you can just imagine the poles probably got this big bow in it, you know, and they're carrying these grapes and and bringing them out. Like check that out. Can you imagine the, the just the you know the, the the fruit was huge, but the problem was so were the people. Look at verse 25. And they returned from spying out the land after 40 days. Now they departed and came back to Moses. And Aaron and all the congregation of the children of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh, they brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. When the, then they told them and said, we went to the land where you sent us. It truly flows with milk and honey. And this was its fruit. That sounds good, doesn't it? Verse 28. Nevertheless, the people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the mountains. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea along the banks of the Jordan. So what freaked them out was this group of people, the Anakim, the descendants of Anak. These were giants that lived in the sand, in, 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 in that lived in the land. Um, they were descended from a guy named Anak, and he was the guy who actually was a Canaanite that actually founded what's now known as, or what was then known as Hebron. Before that, it was named Kiriath Arba. Giants in the Old Testament, we, we read about that in different places. You guys know the story of Goliath, right? Goliath and, and David and Goliath. Uh, Goliath was a giant. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 6, verse 4, before the flood. It says there, there were giants on the earth in those days, in the days of Noah's flood, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men who were of old men of renown. Later on, when we get to Deuteronomy, probably a week or two from now, and no, I'm just kidding, we're not, we're, we're, it's going to be a while before I get to Deuteronomy. But when we get to Deuteronomy, chapter 3, verse 11, they're going to describe a bed from one of these giants. The guy happened to be a name of, uh, of Og, the king of Bashan. His bed... Well, they give it in cubits, but a, a cubit is eight, roughly 18 inches. His bed was about 13 and a half feet long, six feet wide. I wouldn't fit in my house. <laughs> it wouldn't fit in our upstairs where our bedroom is. Um, so it, that just gives you the idea. This guy was probably about 12 feet tall at least, something like that anyways. And who knows how massive uh, he was that way. Goliath himself, we know that he was about nine feet tall, or at least nine, actually was over nine feet tall. So these guys were huge. You know, it's interesting to me. So I do a lot of background research on this. I go and look at all the different dictionary, Bible dictionaries and encyclopedias and all, all the resources that I have. And every once in a while, I come across one that I just shake my head at. And it's, it's usually the same guys that like, you know, Leviathan in the Bible, you know, and the people go, oh, it's got to be a dinosaur or something like that. Those are the guys that go, oh, it was just a large crocodile. You know, that's all they say. Well, I was reading in this book, and this guy says, well, you know, these, the, the children of Israel are only about five foot something. You know, uh, they were pretty short. Uh, so anyone over six feet would be a giant to these guys. And I'm thinking, yeah, come on, man. Give me a break. Uh, we got the, the dimensions here. These guys were huge. So I, I, just, I just shake my head at people that try to just, they, they take the words and they try to make it fit so that it's more palatable to, you know, educated people, whatever. It's just, anyways, I'm getting on a hobby horse. I don't want to do that. There were giants. And it freaked out the people. It freaked them out. Verse 30. Uh, then uh, Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and take possession for we are well able to overcome it. Caleb, one of the spies, he saw the giants too. 
He wasn't focused on the problem. He was focused on the promise of God. And God's given us this land. It, later on in chapter 14, we're going to read that Caleb has a different spirit. That's what God's going to say about Caleb. He's got a different spirit than those other spies. He didn't have a spirit of fear, but like the New Testament says, he has a spirit of power, of love, and of a sound mind. A spirit of power. Caleb was the kind of guy who said, man, God is bigger than the boogeyman. He's bigger than Godzilla and the monsters on TV. I bet you Caleb wrote that. I'm, I'm sure you did. It's like what David said in Psalm 27, verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? It's the spirit of love. Romans 8, 31, Paul says this. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? God loved the children of Israel. He was given them the land. Who can stand in the way of God? And also of a sound mind. Listen, God had promised to defeat the enemies, and Caleb knew that. He knew the word of God. He knew the promises. Philippians 4, verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Verse 31. But the men who had gone up with him said, We're not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. And they gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great stature. Then we saw the giants, the descendants of Anak, came from the giants. And we were like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so were we in their sight. That's probably where the term we, grasshopper, came from. <laughs> um, Listen, F.B. Meyer said this. He wrote this in his book, Moses, the Servant of God. Unbelief never gets beyond the difficulties, the cities, the walls, the giants. It is always picturing them, dwelling on them, pitting them against its own resources. Faith, on the other hand, though it never minimizes the difficulties, looks them steadily in the face, turns from them, and looks up into the face of God and counts on him. It was a story in the New Testament. There's a storm on the Sea of Galilee, and the disciples are there, and, and, and Jesus is not with them, and, and it's, they think that they're going to sink. I mean, it's, it's a bad storm, and they're, they're taking water on, and they're sailing in their fishing boats and stuff, and, and, and they're panicking, and then all of a sudden, they see Jesus. At uh, first, they don't realize it's Jesus. They think it's a ghost, but then they realize it's Jesus walking across the water. And Peter, it says there in Matthew 14, verse 26, and when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, it is a ghost. And they cried out for fear, but immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, be of good cheer, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. So he said, come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw the wind that was boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out saying, Say, Lord, save me. He was looking at Jesus because he was walking towards him. He had his eyes fixed on Jesus. And guess what? He's walking on the water. But then all of a sudden, he takes his attention off of, of Jesus, and now he's looking at the problem, the waves and the wind and the storm, and he starts freaking out, and he sinks. Chapter 14, verse 1. So all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. That is so telling. That is so telling. Listen, on the part of the spies, two of them give a good report, 10 of them don't. There were at least 2 million people at this point. Can you just understand what discouragement can do? The discouragement of 10 people affected a couple million people, caused them to fear. That's, that's what discouragement can do. On the part of the people themselves, Man, it just reveals their character. It reveals where their hearts are at. Man, the slightest obstacle sends them into a tailspin. They were of so little faith in God, the smallest challenge, the slightest opposition, man, they just, they just, it just throws them off kilter. 
Totally. And I know believers that are like that too. The slightest difficulty and man, it's like, man, woe is me, you know, God's out to get me. Verse 2, and all the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron and the whole congregation said to them, if only we had died in the land of Egypt or if only we had died in the wilderness. Why has the Lord brought us to this land to fall by the sword that our wives and children should become victims? Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let us select a leader and return to Egypt. Listen, this is discouragement. It's not even a setback at this point. It's just discouragement. God had promised them to give the to, uh, promise to give them the land. And here they are ready to go back to Egypt to their former bondage. And you know, maybe we might read that and go, man, those guys, I, I just can't believe how fickle these children of Israel are. But you know, how many times when you and I are discouraged? or we're facing some kind of a, a setback or some kind of a hurdle that seems gigantic. And what do we want to do? We want to go back to our old, the things that kept us in, in bondage in our Egypt. You know, it's a common movie scene. I like detective movies and, you know, mystery movies and stuff. And my wife and I were watching a, a, a mystery movie and this person, uh, she loses her job and, and things are just, just going against her. She's got this huge lawsuit against her. And uh, the next scene, it's like there's been a few weeks or something. Here she's in her bed, in her house and she's never put on, she's always in her pajamas and, you know, there's the food junks laying all over and it's like she's just a wreck, you know, and then her friend comes in there to encourage her and, you know, it happens in those movies, right? The detective movies usually. Some guy, you know, he goes on this weak binge of drinking alcohol and then finally, finally he comes back to his senses and now he's going to go and, you guys, you know that, right? How many, that's a typical movie scene. Why? Because that's a typical human reaction. It's human nature. It's common because how many times when people face setbacks, they just want to give up and go back to the past because the past was easier. You know, fear is a common emotion. I get afraid. I'm sure you do too. We all get afraid at different times. Moses himself is quoted in Hebrews 12, 21 saying, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. Even Moses was afraid at different times. But for you and I, the believer in Jesus Christ, we have to be careful. We can't be given in to our fear. Why? Why can't we be given in to our fear? Because fear can turn to unbelief. And unbelief can in turn, they then can turn into rebellion. Look at the children of Israel. They're fearing the giants. They're fearing the, the Canaanites, the enemies, and all that stuff. Their fear turned into disbelieving God's promised victory over the inhabitants of the land. Now they're accusing God of lying, and they're accusing him of being wicked. They say, the Lord has brought us to this land to fall by the sword. Our wives and our children will become victims. Where'd their faith go? It's out the window. And then their unbelief turns into open rebellion. They say, let us select a leader and return to Egypt. Verse 5. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the children of Israel. But Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes. And they spoke to all the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, The land we pass through to spy out is an amazing, uh, excuse me, is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, nor fear the people of the land, for they are our bread. Their protection has departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. So here now they are rejecting Moses's and Aaron's leadership. Again, put yourself into Moses' shoes. This wasn't the first time that they were like, we don't want Moses anymore. We need a different leader. But at that time, Moses was up on Mount Sinai and he didn't hear that. He didn't know that was going on, although it was going on. But now they're doing it right to his face. 
At one time before, God wanted to wipe out the children of Israel, and Moses, God, Moses interceded, said, Lord God, don't do that. Moses put up with so much with those people. He had done so much for them. He had interceded for them. He was so patient with them. You can imagine, can you imagine how Moses would have felt? Man, we don't want him anymore. We want somebody else to lead us, and we're going back the other way. You can do whatever you want, Moses. What does Moses do? Moses and Aaron, rather than fight, they fall. Rather than fight, they fall. They fall on their faces before the Lord. That's such an important picture for you and I when we're being attacked. The enemy's coming at you. Man, rather than trying to defend yourself, trying to fight, man, fall on your face before the Lord in prayer. Take it to the Lord. What did Joshua and Caleb do? They tore their clothes. That's a sign of extreme grief and mourning. They're mourning over the rebellion of the children of Israel. You know, we can get so caught up in politics right now, so angry at the other side. You know, those politicians, you know, get so angry and stuff. And man, it's an emotion, right? It's a common emotion. But man, when was the last time we grieved over the deception and the lies of the enemy? And the sin, the people are just caught up and they're blind to it. When do we grieve? Well, that's what Joshua and Caleb were doing. They were grieving. They, they tore their clothes. They said, don't rebel against the Lord, nor fear the people of the land. Man, they're our bread. What does that mean? They're not cannibals, by the way. What he meant to say or what, what, the, what they're saying is these guys are so easy to cut up in pieces, to chew up and swallow, man. They're, they're like, you don't even need a steak knife, man. <laughs> they're 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 bread for us, man. Why? Because their protection has departed from them. Actually, it, that protection, it literally means their shade. The shade's been removed from them. Now, in the desert, shade is important. Shade provides protection from the, the extreme you know, heat of the sun. And what they were saying is, man, they're, they're no longer protected. How could they say that? How did they know that? Because God had told them through when God had spoken to Abraham and it had been passed down to them. In Genesis 15, verse 16, God told Abraham, hey, my people, your descendants, they're going to spend time in another land and they're going to be there till the fourth generation. And it says in chapter 15, verse 16, until the iniquity of the Amorites is complete. And the iniquity of the Amorites was complete. They were no longer being spared by the Lord. Their protection had been removed from them. Caleb and Joshua know this. Well, the children of Israel knew this too, or they should have. So what did the children of Israel do? Man, you're right. We're sorry. No. Look at uh, verse, the second half of verse, uh, or actually verse 10. All the congregation said, said to stone them with stones. Man, that's the response. They want to kill these guys. David Guzik writes this, nothing can be more vexing, more aggravating to the child of God in rebellion than another child of God who was full of faith and submission to God and who was godly counsel. You know, when someone's in rebellion, someone's backslidden, the last thing they want to do is have some Christian around them that's some brother in the Lord or sister that's walking, you know, according to the Lord and everything seems to be going good in their lives. It's like, I don't want to hear it, man. Stay away from me. You know, that's, that's people's attitudes. And that was their attitude, man. They were like gnashing their teeth. They wanted to kill these guys. Second half of verse 10. Now the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle of meeting before all the children of Israel. Then the Lord said to Moses, how long will these people reject me? And how long will they not believe me with all the signs which I have performed among them? Back in verse 2, we read that the children of Israel were complaining against Moses and Aaron. But in reality, they were complaining against God. God had appointed Moses and Aaron. God had told Moses and Aaron, this is what you should do. Tell the children of Israel this. They weren't rebelling against Moses and Aaron. They were in a sense, but ultimately they were rebelling against God and to his leadership. Verse 12, this is the Lord speaking. I will strike them with, pest, with the pestilence and disinherit them. And I will make you a nation greater and mightier than they. Again, remember Moses, is, he's gone through all this stuff. 
He's, he, he's like, okay, my mission's almost accomplished and the children of Israel, they don't want to go in. They don't even want his leadership. They want to stone uh, Joshua and Caleb. They hate these guys. I mean, put yourself in, that sh in your shoes and the Lord would say, hey, uh, I'm going to wipe them out. I'm going to make a nation of you. It'd be like, yeah, they get what they deserve, you know. Man, Moses, this is the second time this has happened. Moses doesn't do that. Look at verse 13. And Moses said to the Lord, then the Egyptians will hear it. For by your might, you brought these people up from among them. And they will tell it to the inhabitants of this land that uh, they have heard that you, Lord, are among, those, uh, among these people, that you, Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands above them. And you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you kill these people as one man, then the nations will, uh, which have heard of your fame will speak, saying, because the Lord was not able to bring this people to the land which he swore to give them, therefore he killed them in the wilderness. And now I pray let the power of my Lord be great, just as you have spoken, saying, The Lord is long-suffering and abundant in mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but by no means clearing, clears the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Pardon the iniquity of this people, I pray, according to the greatness of your mercy, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt even until now. Man, what a, the character of Moses, the love of Moses, the patience of Moses. What does he do? First of all, he appeals to God's glory, to his reputation. Hey, the Egyptians and the Canaanites, they've seen what you've done, Lord. They've heard about you. They're, they're, your reputation is going to be destroyed, Lord. Let me ask you this. Do you and I, do we worry about God's reputation when we're doing things, especially things that we shouldn't be doing? Do we worry about the Lord's glory, about his reputation? He appeals to God's glory. He also appeals to God's power. God, if you wipe them out, they'll say you were unable to fulfill your promise. You couldn't bring them into the promised land. Their sin and rebellion was too great for you to pardon them. Man, I love that when I read that. Praise the Lord Praise the Lord that you and I, we can't sin to the point that God says, man, you've gone too far. I can't, I, can't, I can't forgive you anymore. I can't deliver you. I can't change you anymore. Praise the Lord that that's, that's not the case. God is powerful to forgive us. And then he appeals to God's character. Lord, you revealed yourself to be mercy, merciful. Do as you're do according to your character. You know, it's kind of important to understand here. God isn't just saying this, you know, like he's saying it, but he doesn't really mean it. He's not really going to wipe them out. He's just saying that to see what Moses is going to do. God doesn't lie. He was ready to wipe out the children of Israel. Moses would have been the new patriarch of the children of Israel. What kind of a temptation would that have been? But you see, God's been doing a work in Moses' heart. God's been giving Moses his heart. And the heart that he's given Moses is the heart of an intercessor. God put that in Moses. Verse 20. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. But truly as I live, all the glory, excuse me, but truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Because all these men who have seen my glory and the signs which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness have put me to the test now these ten times and have not heeded my voice. They certainly shall not see the land of which I spoke to their fathers, nor shall any of those who reject me see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit in him, and has followed me fully, I will, bring, uh, I will bring into the land where he went, and his descendants shall inherit it. Now the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valley. Tomorrow turn and move in, out into the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, How long shall I bear with this evil congregation who complain against me? I have heard the complaints 
that the children of Israel make against me. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will do to you. The carcasses of you who have complained against me shall fall in the wilderness. All of you who were numbered according to your entire number from 20 years old and above, except for Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun, you shall by no means enter the land which I swore I would make you dwell in. But your little ones, whom you said would be victims, I will bring in, and they shall know the land which you have despised. But as for you, your carcasses shall fall in this wilderness, and your sons shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years, and bear the brunt of your infidelity until your carcasses are consumed in the wilderness." According to the number of the days in which you spied out the land, 40 days, for each day you shall bear your guilt one year, namely 40 years, and you shall know my rejection. I, the Lord, have spoken this. I will surely do so to all this evil congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness, they shall be consumed, and there they shall die." That whole generation, that, that group of people, they said that they would rather die in the wilderness or, or die in Egypt. And God says, okay, I'm going to grant you your wish. You will die in the wilderness with the exception of Joshua and Caleb. And we're going to be reading about these guys for books to come. They're throughout the Bible. The other leaders that I mentioned, we're not going to hear any more about them. They're going to wander in the wilderness one year for every day that the spies were in Canaan, which was 40 days. So they'll be wandering for 40 years. Verse 36. Now the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land, who returned and made all the congregation complain against him by bringing a bad report of the land, those very men who brought the evil report about the land died by the plague of the Lord, died by the plague before the Lord. But Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, remained alive of the men who went to spy out the land. Verse 39. Then Moses told these words to the children, to all the children of Israel, and the people mourned greatly. And they rose up early in the morning and went up to the top of the mountain, saying, Here we are. We will go up to the place which the Lord has promised, for we have sinned. And Moses said, Now why do you transgress the command of the Lord? For this will not succeed. Do not go up, lest you be defeated by your enemies, for the Lord is not among you. For the Amalekites and the Canaanites are there before you. You shall fall by thy sword. Because you have turned away from the Lord, the Lord will not be with you. But they presumed to go up to the mountaintop. Nevertheless, neither the ark of the covenant of the Lord nor Moses departed from the camp. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who dwelt in that mountain came down and attacked them and drove them back as far as Hormel. Hormel, not Hormel. <laughs> They weren't by Austin. <laughs> if you're from another place and you're watching this, you have no clue. But Hormel, you know, the meat company, they're local to, to us here. <laughs> so get this. God tells the children of Israel to go into the land. My presence is going to go with you. I'm going to deliver you. And they refuse. Now he forbids them to go. And now they're like, we're going to go. They go anyway without his presence, and they're defeated. It reminds me of Proverbs chapter 3, verse 11. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. He was chastening the children of Israel. He was correcting them, and they're rejecting his correction and they're going to go ahead and, uh, you, you know, it's, they say we've sinned. It sounds like, they're, it sounds like they're, they're repenting and everything. But you see, the thing is, God had put them in this place. Now, now I'm going to deal with you in a different way. And, and now they're re rebelling against that. And they're wanting to go against the Lord. Hebrews 12, 11 says, Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. We all know that, don't we? Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. 
they're trying to bypass what God was going to do for the children of Israel. You see, the children of Israel, they were not ready to be promised land people. They still had that slave mentality. They have 40 more years to be prepared for Canaan. Now, a lot of times, and you've probably heard this before, but uh, certainly when we were in the book of Exodus, I've said it over and over again, and I think the Bible bears it out, that Egypt is a picture. Egypt is a picture of the world, a picture of bondage to sin that people are in. And when people are born again, when they accept, they repent of their sins, they put their trust in Jesus Christ for their salvation, they are delivered from that bondage. In a sense, they're in the wilderness now. They've, they've come out of, of Egypt. But what's a common mistake, I think, with a lot of people is they can say, well, the promised land has got to be a picture of heaven then. And we have all the songs. In fact, we sang one today about, you know, bound for the promised land. That's a great song, by the way. I'm not knocking the song at all. But we have that kind of that mentality. Well, well, the Bible, the promised land, the Canaan, that must be heaven. But think about it. If that were heaven, if there's giants these guys got to slay. There's battles they got to fight. I hope I don't have any giants I have to confront in heaven. I hope I don't have to fight any battles to get into heaven or, you know, to, to inherit my land. And, you know, it's not, so it's not a picture of heaven. Listen, if Egypt's a picture of the world or picture of the bondage to sin, and I do believe the wilderness is deliverance from the world, it's a point in a person's life, they give their heart to Jesus, they've been, they've been delivered from sin, but they have to be transformed. And so they're going through this process of, 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 of being transformed in their hearts and their minds from bondage mentality to promised land mentality. I, I think that's a picture. Well, you can say, well, what's, what's Canaan then? If it's not a picture of heaven... I think Canaan is a picture of that deep walk with the Lord, the spirit-filled walk with the Lord where you're taking, on, you're taking territory from the enemy in your life, where you're fighting the giants in your life and you're experiencing victory over those. I think that's what Canaan is a picture of. You know, the children of Israel, they could have entered Canaan. They, they, I mean, the story could have been different. They could have gone to that point. They, maybe they could have still sent in spies and they would have said, let's go for it. Okay. They could have listened to Joshua and Caleb and gone in and started inheriting the promised land. But they didn't. They gave in to fear. Their fear led to unbelief and their unbelief led to rebellion. So instead they wandered 40 years in the wilderness before they could enter the promised land. For you and I, fear, unbelief, and rebellion can keep us from that deeper walk with the Lord God. doesn't mean that we're not saved. I'm not saying that. But it can keep us from that, walk or, uh, that deep walk with the Lord. Listen, you may escape Egypt and still miss Canaan in your life. You might say, well, I, I, don't, want, I, I don't want that to be the story of my life. I don't want to be stuck in the wilderness, kind of going over the same thing over and over and over again and never getting to that point where I'm seeing victory in my life. Well, here's what you do. You can do it. You don't have to be stuck there. Peter writes this in 2 Peter 1 verse 5, but also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue. Add to your faith virtue. That word virtue means manliness. It doesn't mean be a man, you know, but in a sense he is. It means valor. It means courage, fortitude, resolution. It means, you know, it's one thing to say I've got faith. Because before they heard the report of the promise, I'm sure the children of Israel are like, man, God's our God. We believe him. He's going to deliver. We're going to get in there and stuff. But when their faith got put to the test, it wasn't accomplished. With, it wasn't accompanied with works. It wasn't accompanied with virtue, with valor. It was accompanied with fear. James writes this. But, uh, in chapter 2, verse 20 and 22. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works? And by works, faith was made perfect or was completed. 
See, it's one thing to say you have faith, but what happens when your faith is put to the test? What happens when you're confronted with a giant in your life? What do you do? James mentioned Abraham, that he was justified by works when he offered up Isaac. I love what the writer of Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17 says. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. Abraham had received the promises. God says, man, I'm going to make a nation out of you, and I'm, I'm, you're going to have a son in his old age. And he has a son, and then God says, I want you to sacrifice him. Wow. I, but you gave me the promise. What a, that would be enough for any father. You can imagine that's a giant. <laughs> that's a, that's a, that's a like, uh, this humongous giant. How can I overcome that? I, I, I've got to kill my son. I've got, to, I've got to take away the promise. But Abraham didn't look at that. Look at it that way. It says there in verse 19, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead. That, that, that's faith. Abraham's like, man, I don't know. How are you going to do it, God? You want me to kill him? I'll kill him. And I guess you're going to resurrect him. You're going to do something because you're faithful to your promises. That, that's faith. That's faith with works. And so for you and I, when we're confronted with, with, with giants in our lives, enemies that are coming against us, we have a choice. Are we going to shrink back in fear? Are we going to go back to our old patterns of bondage and sin? Or are we going to walk by faith and not by sight? Why don't you stand up? Let's go, Lord, in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we thank you for the story of the children of Israel. And, Lord, your word says that these are not just stories, but they were written for our edification. They were written for us to apply them in our own lives. And Lord, this morning, I want to pray for those that are fearful today. Lord, those that are facing a challenge that just seems insurmountable right now. A giant that's huge. An enemy that seems to be relentless. Whatever it is in their lives, Lord, a, 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 an area that they just, they're just struggling with. Lord, I pray that they might be encouraged to trust you and your word, Lord, that you've promised you'd never leave us, you'd never forsake us. You didn't say that we wouldn't have trials. In fact, you said in this life you will have tribulations, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Lord, that we would realize that even though we might face these difficulties, Lord, you are with us in the difficulties. And Lord, you've promised to bring us through those and to give us deliverance from them. And so, Lord, I pray no matter what we're facing, and I know some of us are facing huge things, huge obstacles, Lord, that we would keep our eyes fixed on you. Lord, we, we don't deny that the obstacles are there, but Lord, we don't focus on them. Lord, we focus on you and that we keep our eyes glued on you, Lord God. May we walk by faith and not by sight this morning. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.